Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. The old saying, that's like comparing apples to oranges, notes that while two things may have a thing or two in common, in this case, they are both food and they are both fruit, the comparison largely ends right there. Apples and oranges are not that interchangeable for each other, and neither is really seen as a lesser substitute for the other. We enjoy them both. Maybe we should start saying, that's like comparing tofu to meat, instead. Both, again, are food, both are rich in protein, but that is where the similarities end, pretty much. Despite this, for decades, tofu has often been marketed here in the United States as a substitute for meat, while in East Asia, tofu is celebrated in its own right. So how did this comparison start and why? Well, to figure it all out, we went back to one of the earliest attempts to popularize tofu in the United States, to the story of Yame Ken. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. Hey, Proof listeners. Now, we all know that fried calamari is delicious, but what else can you do with calamari? Today, I'm calling one of my America's Test Kitchen colleagues to find out. Hello? Hey, Dan, it's Bridget. Bridget, what are you doing calling me? (laughs) I have a very specific question for you, and I can't think of a better person to ask, but, okay, this is going to sound strange, but what is your favorite way to make and prepare calamari? So I love calamari and the fact that you can cook it really briefly and it's nice and tender, Mm -hmm. or you can cook it for a long time and it gets supple and, and super, super tender. So I love a stuffed and braised calamari. Oh, yeah. You know, obviously I love fried calamari, but one of my other favorites is doing it in a risotto. The texture is just incredible. So it's nice tender bites that kind of contrast nicely with the rice. Calamari can be so much more than deep fried rings. For our recipe for seafood risotto, and to learn where you can buy Town Doc Calamari, visit towndoc.com slash ATK. I grew up in a Taiwanese household, and I was always baffled by these different views of tofu. This is Daphne Chen. She's a New York City reporter who's bringing us this story today. Hey, Daphne. Hi, Bridget. So what is baffling to you here? Well, in the U.S., you often see tofu being used as a meat substitute, and I never really understood that comparison because tofu is very unmeat-like. When I ate tofu at home, it wasn't to take the place of something— We ate it because it balanced out a spicy bean sauce really well or because we wanted something refreshing on a hot day. Right. So you liked tofu for tofu. Exactly. (laughs) So I've wondered a lot about this other view of tofu. It's often been traced back to the hippie counterculture in the 60s. But then I came across this article in the New York Times, which was published decades before any of that happened. It was about a doctor named Yame Kin, and there was a quote from her where she says, Waiting for an animal to become big enough to eat is a long proposition. First you feed grain to a cow, and finally you get a return in protein for milk and meat. 
A terribly high percentage of the energy is lost in transit from grain to cow. And in this article, she argues that it would be much more efficient if Americans ate soybean products, like tofu, instead of animal meat. Which made me wonder, who was Yamekin, and why did she try to sell tofu as a meat replacement? And if she was doing this work back in the early 1900s, why did we go through a similar spiel again with the hippies in the 60s? There's hardly a thing you can imagine that you can't put tofu in. This is Bill Shirtliff, who is actually a major force behind popularizing tofu in the hippie movement. In 1975, he and his wife at the time, Akiko Awiyagi, published this legendary book called The Book of Tofu. It helped to launch hundreds of tofu makers across the country. Bill was very passionate about soy then and is very passionate about soy now. So I called him on his landline to talk yame and tofu, and he had a lot to say. Put it in soups. Put it in casseroles. Put it in blended dishes. Like, a lot, a lot. Salad dressings are absolutely delicious made with tofu. And so I would say that there's no food in America that's more versatile than tofu except water. Not surprisingly, Bill's work with tofu didn't stop with the Book of Tofu. Soon after, he and Akiko set up the Soy Info Center, their website slash database for all things soy. Akiko doesn't do this work anymore, but Bill still runs the place. And one of the documents at the Soy Info Center is this really comprehensive biography of Yami Kin. So I asked him if he remembered when he first heard about her. I remember it vividly. So I was at the University of California reading the New York Times magazine index and looking under soy. And this one article from June 10th, 1917, catches his eye. Here, I'll read you the actual, what it says. Woman off to China as government agent to study soybean. And I immediately went home and wrote a letter. That's the way you contacted people in those days to the New York Times and said, I would like to order a copy of this article. Here's my check. And they sent the article to me in a mailing tube. (laughs) This was actually the same article that I'd come across. And luckily for us, nowadays, you can just find it online. Yeah. And it's such a fascinating article to read. It makes this task of researching a plant sound so dramatic. Well, speaking of which, it might be helpful to add some soybean context here, because it really was kind of dramatic. Today, the U.S. is the world's second largest exporter of soybeans, but that was very much not the case during Yame's time. Well, it was just sort of getting its beginnings as a crop in the U.S. at that point. This is Matt Roth. He's the author of Magic Bean, The Rise of Soy in America. And according to him, agricultural researchers initially wanted to develop soybeans as a forage crop. In other words, as hay for animals to eat. And that really got underway right about 1900, when the USDA Forage Crop Division started receiving samples of soybeans uh, from around the world. For centuries, the soybean has been cultivated and used for food by people in the Orient and trying to sort out the various varieties and figure out where they could be acclimated. Trained observers watch the plants in all the stages of their growth to see if the beans have desirable characteristics. But during the 1910s, soybeans were really only grown in the U.S. in North Carolina, 
And as a, a food, it was even less well-known than as a crop at that point. Part of this was because most Americans didn't really seem to know how to cook soybeans, which had been around in East Asian and Southeast Asian cuisines for a while. In fact, you can find references to tofu in Chinese documents that are over a thousand years old. But in the 1900s, the U.S. was still around 88% white, with Chinese and Japanese Americans making up less than 0.3% of the population. So there was a lot of work to cultivate a soybean variety that could be cooked like other beans, like boiling them until they're soft. Or baked into a casserole or subbed into pork and beans. That way really did not work with soybeans. One reason is that dried soybeans take about twice as long to cook as navy beans, pintos, or kidney beans. And so the U.S. government realized that if soybeans were going to catch on in this country— they needed to figure out other ways to eat them. And there was a very good reason that the government was interested in soy. Around two months before the profile on Yame is published, the Republic must awaken. The U.S. entered World War I. And the safety of the world will be decided on the western battlefront of Europe. The priority shifted to feeding American soldiers and the soldiers of U.S. allies. Foods like coffee, beef, and butter were directed overseas, which meant that on the home front... There were shortages of meat, there were shortages of wheat, there were shortages of fats. So they started considering ways of substituting for these things and then promoting these substitutes to a wider public. A lot of this work fell to the early U.S. Department of Agriculture or USDA. The soybean caught their eye as a promising meat alternative because around 40% of its calories come from protein. That's pretty high compared to other beans, which range between 20 to 30% protein. But again, the challenge was how to convince Americans to eat it. And so that is in part what Yamei Kin was brought in to do, to investigate the Asian methods of cooking and processing soybeans to see how practical they were in an American context. Now is probably a good place to talk about Yame Ken and why she was kind of the perfect person for this mission. She has a somewhat unusual background. She was born in 1864 in Ningbo, China, a city just south of Shanghai. Her parents were actually converted Christians and her father was a pastor. But when Yame is around two years old, her parents die in a cholera epidemic so she's adopted by medical missionaries from the U.S., Dr. Divi Bethune and Joanna McCarty. And they raised her in places where they were doing their missionary work. So she was raised a good deal of the time in Japan. She also goes to the U.S. with the McCartys when they're on furlough. She's around five years old on her first trip. And every few years after that, the family moves among China, Japan, and the U.S., so from an early age, she was crossing cultures, crossing the oceans, going from one continent to the other. Even though they're bouncing around a lot, the McCartys make sure that Yame learns about Chinese culture in addition to everything else. Apparently, at one point, she had mastered five different languages, but she grew up learning Chinese, learning Chinese customs, as well as absorbing the customs of Japan and the U.S. when she was here. In 1882, Yame is 18 years old, and she becomes a student at the Women's Medical College of the New York Infirmary in New York City. 
She's quite conspicuously the only Chinese student in the class, which is maybe why she enrolls under a different name, Y. Mei King. And I think that was a purposely anglicized name to emphasize an English identity. That same year, the U.S. passes the Chinese Exclusion Act. This essentially bans Chinese laborers from immigrating to the U.S. and puts strict restrictions on non-laborers and Chinese Americans already in the country. More on this later. But despite all of these obstacles, Yame graduates three years later. According to some sources, Yame was the first Chinese woman to get a medical degree in the United States. If not the first, she's certainly one of the earliest. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. But for Yame, being the first comes with its downsides. She embarks on medical missions in Japan and China for the next decade or so, and in one of her earliest assignments, the mission actually refuses to give her a place to live or money for her hospital, simply because they disapprove of female doctors. And there's a lot of xenophobia against Chinese people, even within the mission. Later on, though, she settles in Kobe, Japan, running a women and children's clinic. And she also does some work with the USDA, helping them collect seeds and catalog plants. She sends these seeds back to the United States and includes a little description with each. Facilis aureus rob. This makes a better quality of starch than anything else. Perhaps it might be an Hulcus addition to the Hulcus sorghum L. These white varieties go by the common name of step-grandma white. Exactly why they should be called step-grandma, I do not know as of yet. There are some developments in her personal life, too. Around 1894, she gets married. She married her kind of cad of a husband. I don't know how much uh, information you've looked up on him, but uh, yeah, he was a character. Okay, yeah, I found it. Hippolytus Laesola Amador Ica de Silva. That's so long. This is writer Alexander Chang, who recently published a novel called Days of Distraction. The protagonist, a young Chinese-American woman, actually comes across articles about Yame and develops this deep sense of kinship with her. So Alexandra has spent a lot of time researching Yame and her husband, Hippolytus. He was born in Macau, but of Portuguese descent, so he was probably a colonizer, <laughs> child of a colonizer. It actually took me a while to find that she was significantly older than him. She was in her 30s. I think she was 31 when she got married. Hippolytus is around 23. She married him, had a son with him. They moved to Hawaii. And at the time, she would go on missionary fundraising trips to California and elsewhere. Around 1902, they moved to Boston, then a little later, San Francisco. While Yame is moving around the States, she also starts to give public lectures, which become pretty popular. And she very quickly left him. This news makes a splash in the newspapers, partly because of Yame's growing fame and partly because she gave kind of a surprising reason for wanting a divorce. She essentially left him because she wanted to become, quote, a new woman. And that's like what her husband said. That's what a witness said. She doesn't even turn up to her first divorce proceeding. And at one point, Hippolytus begs her to take him back, but she refuses. And I just found it so funny that there is this attempt by him to 
like maintain this marriage? And she's like, no, I have things to do. I have engagements in the East to fulfill. I don't really need this. I'm becoming this new woman. And she, at least according to De Silva, said that he was not like up with the times. And that's also why she was leaving him. Which turned out to be kind of prescient on her part. Definitely. A few years after they separate, Hippolytus gets arrested for smuggling Chinese women into the country to be used as sex workers. Meanwhile, Yame takes custody of their eight-year-old son, Alexander, and she keeps giving these lectures as a source of income for them. And she lectured at that time there were what is called women's clubs. Here's Bill Shirtliff of the Soy Info Center again. And women's clubs were a big, big part of a woman's life in America. And she would lecture about life in China. And many women's clubs found that to be a fascinating subject. These are often elite clubs, too, like the very exclusive Colony Club and the Ebel Club. And Yame is a clever entertainer. She knows how to keep people coming. Yeah, very much so. When she gave series of lectures, she would vary the topic over a series of days. So people would come back for repeated performances and... She would talk about Chinese literature one day and then Chinese art and Chinese philosophy. One enthusiastic but cringy write-up in a newspaper at the time is headlined, Beans, a leading article of diet in China. It mentions a soybean cake that Yame described, which is highly nutritious and explains why Chinese laborers can endure so much on so little food. So she, again, spoke before women's clubs, but she would also speak in front of socialists, and she spoke at a peace conference. And in these, her self-presentation was very particular. She would dress in elaborate Chinese garb, often with elaborate hairdos, to emphasize her exoticism. But as newspapers always noted, her accent is completely American. So this juxtaposition of exotic costume and clear speaking voice, mesmerized audiences, and I I guess gave them some sense of having this almost transparent window onto the mysterious East. She was clearly exoticized by American audiences. You know, they repeat a lot of times like, the little dainty Chinese woman, the little dainty lady in her elegant robes. And they constantly describe her in this way. But then like her direct quotes are almost in conflict, I feel like, with the way that she's described. At every occasion, I don't know if you want to call it part of her shtick, but she made a point of doing what I guess we would call trolling each group in turn. So, for example, Yame might be speaking to a gathering of socialists, and someone might raise their hand and ask, So, what do you think about socialism? And she would say, Well, the Chinese thought of socialism 2,000 years ago. It proved a failure, and we adopted Confucianism. So, we're way ahead of you, and you'd be well advised to become Confucian, like us. When she talked before a peace conference, similarly, she would say, It seems fitting that I should talk to you about peace, because my nation is the only one in the world which has lived up to your doctrine. Perhaps it is fitting, too, that a woman should talk to the peace delegates, because it is woman who has kept man from becoming altogether a brute. 
And she points out oftentimes like Americans have a really mistaken idea about China. They have a mistaken idea about Chinese women. Yame is also pretty blunt about the way that East Asia and India perceive countries like the United States and Britain, that is, as colonizing forces. So in one instance, which I included in my book, she is at like a New York audience for elite, elite New York audience, which was where she ended up getting invited a lot. But she says, you speak of yellow peril. We speak of the white disaster. And this is in 1904, and it's just funny that she is so blunt with them, with, like, Western audiences. It is funny, and it's pretty surprising. Even though she was becoming an elite figure, there's still that underlying xenophobia against Chinese people. And so I wondered a lot about why Yame said the things that she did and how she got away with it. I think that she, from what I understand, wanted to bridge these two cultures in order for both of them to better understand one another. In terms of her doing this lecture circuit, there's this kind of parallel agenda of trying to educate Americans more about China and Chinese people, right? And so there are certain people who are very effective for that. This is Madeline Shu. I'm professor of history and Asian American studies at the University of Texas at Austin. This education agenda makes sense. At that point, travel-wise, a journey across the Pacific takes about a month on a steamliner. And it's not like Google is around. So these types of lectures are an important part of a cultural exchange. But as we mentioned earlier, this is also the era of the Chinese Exclusion Act. That law had grown out of the increasing resentment and suspicion towards Chinese immigrants, specifically laborers, who came for the California gold rush and worked on the first transcontinental railroad. They were referred to as coolies, a racial slur. And the idea was that coolies were sort of an unfair form of competition against U.S. workers and that they represented essential biological racial difference. In other words, Chinese people were viewed as these alien others, and they became looked down upon as this inferior race. Except, you know, the contradiction is among missionaries that if you sort of educate the future leaders of these other societies, and particularly countries that are in crisis, right? That's the moment when they're like ripe to be transformed and to be changed, right? There was a powerful interest in terms of educating Chinese, right? So somebody like Yame, and we see this throughout her life, she's adopted as a kid, right? She gets educated, she gets nurtured, she gets cultivated, but she's given a lot of access. So the attitudes towards Chinese people were kind of paradoxical. On the one hand, you could have someone like Yame giving these popular lectures and working with the USDA, and yet, you still have this sort of perception that they're debased coolies, they're essentially different, right? They can never be American. And I think Yame understands all of this. So it feels like with her lectures and her self-presentation, she's playing up a certain role. So she's representing as a Chinese person who's able to participate in these international circles. And I think that's part of her, her value. The emphasis on her femininity is part of this, too. 
you know, that in terms of having sort of a Asian gain prominence, that there are ways in which women are very much more palatable, especially when it's Asian women. It's like, look, she's Christian. She's so well-spoken, you know, and she's somebody who is so herself enlightened, but in a way that kind of vindicates our project and our activities and what we're doing, that we, in fact, have this success story. Yame Kim's lectures are so intriguing to read that it's easy to forget that she's also a talented doctor. Along with her public talks, she occasionally travels back to China. And while she's overseas, she heads up a few different medical colleges there, including the Imperial Peiyang Women's Medical School and Hospital. So when the USDA becomes interested in soybeans in the midst of World War I, they tap Yame Kim. Yame is at the top of their list of researchers. She clearly understands U.S. culture and Chinese culture, but she also has this medical perspective on diet and nutrition. And for her part, I think she feels some personal motivations to take the job, too. For one, the USDA's endorsement helps her skip some of the lengthy questioning that Chinese people are regularly subject to at the U.S. border. Plus her son, Alexander, who's now 21 years old, enlists to fight in the war. Which brings us back to the 1917 New York Times feature that Bill Shirtliff comes across one fateful day at the library. Woman off to China as government agent to study soybean. When we come back, Yame Kin begins her mission. If there's one thing Kohler knows, it's innovative sink design. So that got me wondering, do my colleagues at America's Test Kitchen know how to fill in the blank? Hello? Hey, Caroline, it's Bridget. I need you to finish the sentence for me. Okay. Everything but the... Everything but the... Hmm. Um... Cat dragged in? Old fish in the freezer. The peanut butter. Everything but the kitchen sink. For everything, including the kitchen sink, there's Kohler. Because they know that in the kitchen, the sink is where clean begins. Kohler's Artifacts Touchless Kitchen Faucet has a precision sensor built right into the spout, so a simple wave of your hand turns the faucet on and off in 20 milliseconds. We're all spending more time at home right now, so why not enjoy a more hygienic kitchen? Wash your hands or your produce without ever touching a faucet. Learn more about the Kohler Artifacts Touchless Kitchen Faucet at Kohler.com clean. When Miyoko Shinner became vegan, she made it her mission to improve the quality of vegan food. And vegans are really the, I think, the most ardent foodies. And we're always concocting new ways of doing old tricks. So when she set her sights on making vegan cheese, she applied the old tricks of traditional dairy cheese making. And if you take that same technology with a few tweaks and apply it to plant-based milks, you can make lovely, lovely cheeses out of it. Plant-based cheeses from Miyoko's Creamery are made by inoculating plant milks with dairy cultures and fermenting them, just like traditional cheesemaking. Miyoko's vegan cheeses are good for the planet and good for you. Learn more at miyokos.com. That's M-I-Y-O-K-O-S dot com. This year, OXO is celebrating 30 years of making better kitchen tools. 
In the engineering lab, senior product engineer Mac Moore can get a little sentimental looking back. This is a handheld spiralizer prototype. That was the first one I made. We keep a few of the older, like more interesting prototypes around just because they're fun to look back on. We have the first angled measuring cup. We have the first mango splitter and it's made out of PVC pipe. So it's, it's pretty cool. Take pride in your kitchen tools. Shop all products at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO, better guaranteed. Hi, Proof listeners. I want to tell you about Nova Now, a new bi-weekly podcast from the PBS series Nova that's diving into the science behind the headlines. Join journalist and physician Alok Patel as he talks with the scientists, engineers, technologists, and mathematicians that are working to better understand our world. Now it's more critical than ever to distinguish fact from fiction and find science-based answers to the most pressing questions of our time. So listen to Nova Now today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before the break, Yame Ken rose to prominence, lecturing to America's elite about Chinese culture. So in 1917, Yame sets off on her soybean mission. She's in China for several months, traveling around to places that are known for their tofu, like Suzhou and Mount Tai. She also tries to arrange for more soybean exports to the U.S., Canada, and Great Britain. Upon her return, she sets up this lab at the USDA's offices in New York City and sings the praises of tofu. This leads to another fascinating newspaper article. Here's historian Matt Roth again. Well, it had, you know, intrepid lady reporter Sarah McDougall visiting the Bureau of Chemistry building. She enters Yame's lab, which has a giant kitchen. There are pails of warm soy milk everywhere and row after row of glass jars, each filled with a different soybean specimen. She had traditional Chinese millstones for grinding soybeans. And uh, so Sarah McDougall visits the office She notes how quiet and quick and dainty Yame is in the kitchen. So the very image of the self-collected Chinese lady. As always, though, Yame Ken's own words paint a different picture. Don't try to think of the soybeans in a scientific way. This thing I'm working with is in reality a vegetable cheese. It takes the place of meat. We've been using soybeans in China for over 2,000 years, and they are really very delicious and nutritious. And while the reporter is there observing... Random USDA people from other offices just happen to swing on by to comment on how much they love tofu, how they took some home. One of them talks about how he fried the tofu with some fish and then couldn't tell them apart because the tofu absorbed the flavor so well. Another said the same thing about pork chops. And so, yeah, she basically reported on people coming in to say, oh... No, tofu, it's amazing stuff. And Yame takes on the role of a cultural guide. She points out that in China, they've already mastered this ingredient. Then the reporter is invited to a luncheon at Yame's apartment. There's a Willy Wonka vibe to this meal because everything is somehow magically made out of soy. They start with these little biscuits. She asks what it is, and the answer is soy. The reporter requests Roquefort, that pungent blue cheese, and the assistant brings out something that tastes exactly like it. There's a pepper stuffed with something that tastes like chicken hash, but turns out to be tofu. 
And to end, a chocolate blancmange, a creamy French dessert. Again, in all these different guises, every time it's put before her, you know, soybeans. There are a few ways that Yame is trying to sell the American public on tofu. One of the arguments was the malleability of tofu, how you could fold it into meat dishes and extend and bulk up what might otherwise be a small ration of meat. So part of it was the idea that it could be well hidden and not upset people as being some inferior substitute. And this is how it's pitched to canners, too. The head of the Bureau of Chemistry actually sends out a flyer advertising Yame's work and offers her as a consultant to talk about ways to bulk up canned goods. Her other kind of line of argument pointed up perhaps the the virtue of tofu a bit more, that it was not a wasteful substance. Instead of taking the long and expensive method of feeding grain to an animal until the animal's ready to be killed and eaten, in China, we take a shortcut by eating the soybean, which is protein, meat, and milk in itself. So it's a, you know, as we would say today, a much more sustainable way of creating protein. And lastly, there's the matter of taste. Because one common note from Americans was that there was this quote-unquote beanie flavor to tofu. So Yame seems to realize that appealing to an American palate is a necessary part of getting the public to accept this new food. Americans do not know how to get the best results from soybeans as human food. Fried in oil, this curd tastes like particularly delicate sweetbreads. And it contains more strength-giving qualities than even Mary England's prime roast. And this really goes back to my original question about why she might have tried to market tofu as a meat alternative. Even as she's explaining that Chinese people have figured out how to get the best out of soy foods, she's still trying to meet the American public where it's at. And that means replacing what they know instead of introducing this entirely new source of protein. And at least for that reporter who visited Yame's lab, she found it pretty compelling. At the end of her article, she writes, If anyone asks you to a soybean luncheon, don't miss it. You will find it a lovely little contribution to the art of living. But things seem to quickly fall apart. After all this work and effort, it takes many more decades before tofu becomes widely known across the country. So what happened? Well, it might help to compare that era with the time when tofu does become more widely adopted, aided in part by people like Bill Shirtliff and his partner Akiko Awayagi. There were some simple differences in logistics. For example, by the time the hippies came around, soybeans had become a major U.S. crop. But there were other more subtle factors, too, which might have made the wider American public more accepting of new foods. It was a time of real revolution. In the 60s and 70s, people were not so interested in the question of how am I going to get a job when I get out of college? The question that was on most people's mind is, what could I do that would make a difference in the world? You know, make the world a better place. I think the trigger was the civil rights movement that forced Americans to rethink the relationship between race, class, and culture. This is Krishnan Ray. And I'm the chair of the Department of uh, Nutrition and Food Studies. 
at NYU. Civil rights to tofu acceptance might sound like a big leap, but let's think back for a minute to Yame Kim's time when Chinese laborers were viewed as these alien others. There's a fascinating pamphlet easily available on the web written by Samuel Gompers. Gompers was a British-born cigar maker who played a major role in founding the American Federation of Labor in 1886. He also served as its president. He wrote a pamphlet with uh, Hermann Gutstadt called Meat versus Rice, American Manhood Against Asiatic Coolism, Which Shall Survive? Question mark. And uh, there he poses that to basically protect American jobs for whites, the United States should exclude uh, Chinese immigrants, especially because Chinese immigrants eat things like rice and soy and fish. Gomper's argument was that these foods were a lot cheaper than stuff like red meat, which was eaten by real American men. So there's this polarization about real American and uh, not-so-real American centered around diet. And these associations lingered long after Gompers and the Chinese Exclusion Act. But in the 60s and 70s, with the civil rights movement, feminist movement, and a growing opposition to the Vietnam War, more and more people began questioning the American identity. That really kind of... uh, lit a fuse under presumptions about who an American is, what an American ought to eat, and what an American ought to do. Of course, this era involved more complicated dynamics than we can cover here. But still, Krishnandu thinks that this changing mindset helped fuel the counterculture's promotion of foods like tofu, which were previously seen as inferior and other. And so this hippie movement teamed up with Asian-American communities, which had been making tofu in the U.S. even before Yame Kin's project. Together, they built the foundation for a wider market for tofu in the country. Here's Bill Shirtliff of the Soy Info Center again. Like, for example, Mr. Yamauchi in Los Angeles and the Mizono brothers in San Francisco were the first to get tofu into supermarkets in America. When the Book of Tofu was published, I did lectures, and Jack Mizono said, if you ever need tofu for your lectures so you can serve it to people, I'll give you all you can use for free. Given all these massive changes, it's not hard to see why Yame Kin had such a difficult time introducing tofu into the American diet in the early 1900s. Thinking about it, it sounds a bit like a fool's errand trying to trying to sell tofu to Americans. But you can understand the logic of it. And the logic of it is relatively simple, which is you get almost 20 times more protein from an acre of land under soy compared to, say, beef. And so it is understandable that people who understood food largely as nutrients uh, would think about this as a good thing to do. But I think we're basically underinvested or underinformed in terms of culture because people don't eat nutrients, people eat dishes, you know, and the dishes are culturally constructed. Yame really seems to understand this. At one point, she does float the idea of a Chinese cookbook with Chinese recipes for tofu and other soy foods. But again, for the most part, she just tries to adapt tofu to fit into what she thinks Americans will accept. 
absolutely. I, I would say good try, but no cigar, right? Uh, it's like <laughs> she was doing exactly the right thing. She understood that Americans were not going to eat something because the Chinese do so. And in the U.S. specifically, I think uh, the context was attitude towards Chinese culture was disparaging, partly because most Americans were exposed to Chinese as poor working class people. This, again, was the whole notion of the coolie. And we have a difficult time disassociating a respect for a culture from the class of people we meet. And that was very clearly in the public domain, a lot of discussion about exclusion of Chinese, about how Chinese culture is inferior, is opium-laden, is dominated by tongs, which are these uh, gangs. But it wasn't just class that mattered here. In the early 1900s, a similar prejudice was directed towards Italian immigrants, too. Right. There was the stigma that Italian food was too garlicky, too seasoned, too spicy. And all of those attributes would in turn make people crave alcohol. But where it begins to bifurcate is, A, there are many more Italians in the U.S. Uh, Today, say, there are about 16 million people of Italian heritage who never gave up on Italian food. And that has an impact. Some sociologists also argue that they become white people. But Chinese food never stopped being ethnic food. And for a long time, tofu burgers were so much more ubiquitous in the U.S. than Chinese dishes like mapo tofu. And it's also why modern descriptions of tofu as something bland or chewy are so frustrating. Is kind of hides this idea that in some ways it's something very alien, I think. And I think that's what is irritable about it. That's what's in some ways racialized about it. So in terms of Yame's mission, she's really fighting an uphill battle. And shortly after that article about her soybean lab is published in 1917, World War I ends. And along with that, the USDA's interest in her project. Here's Bill Shirtliff of the Soy Info Center again. Her funding went down to, I think, $500 in 1918, which I guess is a lot more than $500 as these days. But then she was told she had to share it with another researcher pursuing this other line of incorporating soy flour into bread as the most promising way of enriching Americans' diet. So, you know, if you're going to start hiding your protein, why mimic meat at all? Why not just go all the way and hide it entirely in bread? And she was supposed to make a report that's in the headline of the article, Woman Off to China's Government Agent, Dr. King Will Make Report for the United States. She never did make that report. And I can think of one reason that she might not have, and that was her son was killed in World War I. Alexander dies in action at the Hindenburg Line about two months before the end of the war. The USDA does eventually publish a book a few years later in 1923 called The Soybean. But the only reference to any of Yame Ken's work on tofu is in the preface. And it simply says, attempts have been made during the past five years to introduce tofu to the American people, but without much success. And that's it. That's all you hear. 
That, above everything else, was the most frustrating part of this story for me. That all of Yame's work just seems to vanish. And I really wanted to know how she herself felt about that after all of her research and lectures and recipes. But it seems like she never said anything about it at all. After spending all of this time trying to convince white America to accept a food that they were not going to accept, she just kind of moved on. And it reminded me of this funny story that Alexandra Chang told me. I was so curious about how Yame Kin viewed her husband after leaving him. And there was this one instance where she told a reporter that her ex-husband was dead when he was definitely still alive, having his own weird life. But it was kind of actually refreshing to see that she didn't really care. And maybe the same is true about her work on tofu. I would say looking at Yamekins, it's not failure. She tried very hard. Very interesting figure at a time where Chinese were not respected in American culture. And she tried to make a difference. And the world would be a very different place if all of us had listened to her and eaten our tofu. And so in some ways, it turns out that it's not that Yan Mei Kim was wrong. She was just ahead of her time. And the rest of us are just catching up with her. And I don't want to dismiss the fact that tofu has carved out its own unique spot in this country. It's evolved and it's been adapted and it's beloved by many different types of people, which is great. But it also seems that the early efforts of making tofu into a replacement for meat in mostly westernized dishes led to the American public missing out on so much of what tofu can be in its own right. Like Yame Ken said, it's not all about science or nutrition. It's also about the art of living. Luckily, it seems like we might be at another point where people are changing their minds about what they eat, partly because of renewed environmental concerns, not to mention the ongoing conversations about diversity in food media spurred by the Black Lives Matter movement. And Krishnandu, for his part, is optimistic. I find it totally exciting. For me, it represents an optimistic aspect that most of the people arguing about taste are no longer just white and male. And I think what it represents is the fact that what is good taste is no longer a white monologue. And uh, so I think that tofu now, I can see it in the recipes, is eat like the Chinese rather than trying to turn tofu into red meat American. And so that's exciting and that's transformative. And that is changing global food culture, including American food culture, where we are going to meet tofu on its ground rather than dragging it to ours. So the fact that Yame never seemed to say much about her tofu mission makes sense. Maybe she was just waiting for us to catch up. And in the meantime, she had better things to do, like entertain, travel, translate novels, and debate international politics. A friend of hers noted that in her later years, Yame was the epitome of a matriarch. No one dared to argue with her. She stayed in China up until her death in 1934 from a bout of pneumonia. She was 70 years old. According to her obituary in the New York Times, which was published in 2018 as part of their Overlooked Obituary series, she was buried on a farm outside of Beijing. And even if she wasn't the one who popularized tofu in the United States, I think part of her spirit lives on in all of the ways that we eat tofu today. Oh, there's so many 
delicious ways to eat tofu. It's hard to pick a favorite. I always eat it the same way. Here it is. Well, I have to say, I really do enjoy uh, mapo tofu. I will just say that my mom's mapo tofu is my favorite. Each day, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, I have a quarter pound of tofu. And I put that quarter pound on a plate and slice it in half lengthwise so it's it's like two fillets. My first great tofu was tofu in a vegetarian Vietnamese dish. I think the former tofu was deep fried and then in a beautiful broth with lemongrass and and chilies and coconut milk. It was mind-blowing. I sprinkle my favorite Japanese soy sauce on that and then I put nutritional yeast on top of that. Then I take two slices of whole wheat bread. Ooh, oh, and also um, tofu hua. And I like mine really traditional with just sort of the sweet uh, ginger syrup. From Trader Joe's, they have these wonderful dill pickles. You know, I make some tofu stews and some stir fries. Put the other piece of toast on top of it and have a tofu sandwich for lunch four days a week. And that's my way of eating tofu. Thanks to Daphne Chen for reporting this story. And a special thanks to Xiao Li, who provided lots of background research. If you want to learn more about Yame Ken, we've got some photos on our website for you. And if you like Proof, then be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our managing producer. Associate producer, Caroline Rickert. Scoring sound design and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production supervisor is Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Fact-checking by Kaya Williams. Jack Bishop is Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Kohler, Oxo, Miyoko's Creamery, and The Town Doc. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. Hi, Proof listeners. I'm El Simone Scott. And I'm here to tell you about my new podcast from America's Test Kitchen. It's called The Walk-In, as in the walk-in refrigerator in a restaurant. And if you've ever worked in a restaurant, then like me, you've probably had some of your best cries in the walk-in. It's a safe space, a place to catch your breath or let it all out. And that's exactly what we'll do on my show. We'll hold space for the food world to get real about the tough stuff in this industry. The show features raw, unfiltered conversations with chefs, writers, and visionaries changing the food game. Like my conversation with Mashama Bailey about what it's like to run a fine dining restaurant in a building that used to be a segregated bus station. Or my conversation with Omar Tate about how he expresses the Black experience on a plate. I hope you'll check it out. Subscribe to The Walk-In today, anywhere you get your podcasts.